But there, there's a whole series of biases, which we are all sort of prone to. And it's, as an investor, we've designed a process to get rid of those. So this, um, there's the endowment bias. You love your own company. So I work with the company more than Michael does. I get to know it. It feels like my child. I want my child to be funded and not his. You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Kamal Hassan is a good friend of mine, and he's the founder of Loyal VC along with Michael Kosick. Kamal is based out of Toronto. He makes investments in startups all over the world. And he has a portfolio with startups located in multiple cities and countries. We, we will hear more about it. Uh, welcome, Kamal, to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Thank you. Kamal, tell us about yourself. So I got into venture capital after spending 20 years as an entrepreneur, 15 years as an angel investor, and seven years running accelerator programs. Entrepreneurship was not where I expected to end up. My uh, father is uh, Indian, and like all good Indian fathers, he wanted his son to have a good profession, uh, a good salary. I remember him saying once to me, a young man of your age should have a job or want a job. How, how have I failed as a father when I was in the midst of one of my entrepreneurial ventures? Uh, but I started up with a very conventional career, became an engineer, worked uh, for IMAX, did an MBA at INSEAD and was management consultant before realizing that I liked the freedom of creating things rather than doing what other people told me to do. Well, you were a rebel, I see. I don't feel like a rebel. I mean, I've always been a good student, for instance, but uh, I like making a difference in the world. And uh, sometimes making a difference, you need to follow your own path. What is your investment philosophy and how is it different from other people? One of our big premises is that we don't believe we're smart enough to predict the future, and we don't really think that that is the primary goal of an entrepreneur. One of the things we see a lot of in the world of venture capital, there's a lot of bias. And I think bias happens because people are asked to make snap decisions on who's going to succeed. Our premise with all the investing we do is to say, we don't know who is going to succeed in the future. Let's spend time to get to know companies in depth over multiple months and see how they perform in the actual real world rather than how they perform inside our mental map of what we think a good investment looks like. Is that the philosophy with which you started Loyal BC? How did that evolve? So, yeah, that is. I mean, one of the things we see, Loyal VC, I mean, my partner Michael and I are both longtime entrepreneurs, longtime angel investors. So one of the things we did, we said we wanted to create the fund which we wish we had available to us, both on the investment side as angels, but also as entrepreneurs. And your biggest complaint is an entrepreneur. You hear this over and over when entrepreneurs sit down, is they say the VC just doesn't get it. They don't understand my business. There's this amazing business I'm doing. It's world changing and the VC doesn't get it. And actually, it's no reflection on the VCs. VCs are very smart people, generally speaking. 
the difficulty is you're asking a VC to adopt a whole series of new ideas very quickly. And it's very hard for human beings, we're not processed to learn new ideas very quickly. It's much easier to get a new idea that you learn over a multi-month period and you start to be able to pull in evidence from your own life to validate this new worldview rather than just trying to accept it on faith when you first hear it. And how do you do that? Yes. So we there's sort of two steps to working with us. We only source companies through two uh, strong networks, one being the Founder Institute Accelerator Program, the second being the INSEAD Business School alumni, so alumni of that group. The main reason we source from those networks is as an investor, it removes a lot of risks from the investment. So if we are very well connected in both those networks, and if an entrepreneur tries to cheat us, tries to do badly by us, they aren't just hurting them, uh, hurting us, they're hurting their own reputation in, in two very powerful networks. So the result is we can sort of, uh, it's a very fast way to pre-select out entrepreneurs who are likely to do business fairly with us and vice versa. We have to treat the companies within those networks very well, or that hurts our own reputation in those networks. So it just ensures good acting on both sides. So that's how companies get into our portfolio. That's the first step in working with us. When they do start working with us, though, we only start with an initial $10,000 investment. And then we have a minimum waiting period of three months. I think in in actual fact, four months has been the, the fastest, but typically around eight or nine months, where we work with the company work with them every month so they get a chance to know us to see if we're actually adding any value and we get a chance to see what the company does month in, month out. So I see you're tackling two important and difficult problems to solve. One is bias on the venture capital side. It hurts the entire industry overall. On the other side, the problem is that entrepreneurs tend to be super smart, very creative when they do bad on their side, it's easy for them to kind of disappear. And when it's an ocean of different types of investors in different communities, they can always find themselves in a totally different community the next time and no one would know about their bad behavior. And that also hurts the entire ecosystem. And I see that you're solving for both problems. On the VC side, you you give yourself a lot of time by starting small with the 10K check and then building the relationship over a period of four to eight months, then you uh, once it's proven to the entrepreneur that you're adding value, you go in with a bigger check. And on the other side, because you source from two networks only, you are very, very closely associated with this community. And it is not okay to piss you off because the word will get out. And that yes. kind of instills good behavior on the part of the entrepreneur. It does. The other thing you need to to always think about when you're a venture investor is you should always always be asking yourself with every deal you see, why am I seeing this deal? What makes me special that I get to see it? And is there something wrong with this deal? So we could just as easily invest in graduates of Y Combinator and alumni of the Harvard Business School or MIT Engineering School The reason we don't is because 
A, we have the strength of the network, but B, every investor is always looking for inside access, always trying to make sure at a minimum that there's not negative selection bias, where the only deals they see are the ones nobody else wants to fund. So we have a a degree of inside access to the two networks we work in, that we have that ability to see all deals, including the best, rather than only the ones nobody else wants to fund. It's an interesting question because you don't want to be a part of a club that is willing to accept someone like you. So there's this uh, doubt in your mind all the time, whether it's, is it a sucker deal or is it really a good deal that other people don't get? One of the nice things about the way we invest is our first investment is only $10,000. So I'm not really worried about a sucker deal. And I'm going to give you one example. I mean, we're speaking right now in the middle of COVID. And we had an entrepreneur who came to us in November of last year. And this entrepreneur started off the conversation saying the whole medical establishment does not understand how to treat disease, uh, specifically viral diseases. And the second you hear that statement as a VC, you'd want to turn and run out the door. (laughs) But you sit there and you listen and he goes on. So we know how to treat bacterial diseases. You take an antibiotic, it kills the bacterium, you're done. There are many diseases which are more complex, though, and specifically viral diseases. And this is someone who spent his year, uh, spent decades working on HIV and did his PhD on uh, RNA viruses in the 1970s. But he says with viruses, the issue is not the virus itself. It's how two things matter. There's co-infections in your blood, and it's all about how the immune system reacts. So when the immune system goes into overdrive with these things called cytokine storms, and then there's co-infections which show up, which are still in your body, which the immune system is no longer dealing with because it's going crazy trying to attack this one virus. So back in November, honestly turned to my partner and said, I'm really not sure if we should do this. It sounds really off the wall. And one of the things we did, one of our advisors, we have about 300 of them around the world. One of our advisors is a top doctor. So I introduced this company to this top doctor and told him afterwards, can you tell me what you think about him? And he says, you know, I don't think he's right. I don't think he understands properly how diseases are treated, but I can't point to something specifically wrong he's saying It's just, I mean, it's just really not the way we do things, but I can't point to anything wrong he's doing. So at that point, because it's only a $10,000 investment, we said, sure, let's make a $10,000 investment. We can afford to have the deal go sideways. Now, what happens fast forward to March, and I'm reading about COVID causing cytokine storms in the Wall Street Journal. More recently, I'm seeing people talking about co-infections. And when you hear about cytokine storms in November, when it's a crazy idea, and four months later, it's on the the front pages of the newspaper, 
it's really easy to say, aha, we've got a winner. And where we make our money is we then do follow-on investments in the best companies. So this is one of the ones that we've done a follow-on. Our next check is a $200,000 check. So boom, they got a follow-on $200,000 check from us. I think we started that process in April. What do they have to convince you? I'm asking you about the second step, but I'm also curious about the first step, the first 10,000. But what do they need to prove to you after you've made the $10,000 investment for you to say, I want to now follow on with a bigger check? Well, let me start with the 10,000 first. There was a great study out of, uh, by the Kaufman Fellows published it recently, uh, head of data science for AngelList, Abe Ottman, who basically ran the numbers through all their data and came out and said, in seed stage investing, an index approach outperforms uh, 90 to 95% of investors picking deals. And the way to success is, and there's a caveat, so long as you invest in all plausible deals. So really what we're doing in our first $10,000 is we're trying to be sure the deal is plausible. It has a chance to succeed. We've already filtered out the liars and the cheats because of the networks we work in. And then from there, we're trying to say, are they really crazy? Is there a reason this is going to fail? And if we can't find it, if the deal is plausible, then it's worth putting $10,000 in. So that's how we make that first decision. How long does it take to make that first decision? Uh, is it one meeting or? We always do everything with references. So it's basically talking to people who've spent months watching the, the company perform. And really what we want to see is how has the company performed over time? Because if you want to take the bias out of it, you don't want to say, is the pitch any good? It's what have they done? For Founder Institute, there's people who've run their programs. You have a phone call with them. You ask them to rank their companies and you just invest sight unseen. So effectively, uh, Founder Institute directors have a very large influence on the companies we pick. For INSEAD alumni, we get two references of people who have worked with them, maybe invested in them as an early angel or advised them. And those are the ones who we speak to just to see how the company's developed over time. But often by the time we speak to a company, we've already made up our mind that we're investing and we will have done that based on about an hour's worth of phone calls beforehand. Do you worry about uh, relying on other people's opinion to make investment decisions while in venture it is difficult to rely on other people's opinion. You'll have to form your own independent uh, decision. Absolutely. So we're not really relying on opinion per se. I mean, we are to a degree, but really the questions we ask are all around performance. The nice thing about the Founder Institute, and I personally helped design the program, spent a couple of years sort of designing the specific program, is they give work to the entrepreneur to do each week to build your business. And they don't say, do we think this business will succeed? We say, here are the 220 things that you need to do to get your business up and running. And every week we give you 15 of them. And if you do the 15 things this week that you need to do, you will get a business. And if you stumble on any one of the 15 things, well, that's a flaw. And now let's go back and try to fix that flaw. And if you can't fix that flaw, then don't build this business. 
So the Founder Institute, when you, you ask a Founder Institute director about what they think about a company, that is informed from having seen 14 weeks of performance week in, week out, week in, week out. So that is really what we're looking at is what has the company done over time? Because I don't care who the entrepreneur is. I don't care what you think of them. If they can build the business successfully, that's what matters. So the engineer immigrant in me likes that because there's a process and there's a formula and there's a step-by-step method for entrepreneurship, So which democratizes entrepreneurship, gives hope to anybody that they can build a business. But the investor in me is skeptical that, can you really turn everything into an algorithm and teach entrepreneurship? So, so I think that's one of the mistakes is looking at entrepreneurship as something which should be studied. I often say when I was running programs for Founder Institute, I often used to say, Founder Institute doesn't care if you learn anything. All they care about is that your business succeeds. If it succeeded because you were lucky, if you ignored every piece of advice you got, and you made it work, (laughs) then that's all that matters. And vice versa, you can be the wonderful, most agreeable person who listens to every piece of advice and the business fails. Doesn't help. (laughs) So that's really why we're trying to say, look at performance, look at what the company does. And that's the, the, the brilliance of the Founder Institute program is Founder Institute is a program which is built on setting up a series of hurdles for you and having you jump across them. And they'll give you advice on how to jump, but it's up to you to jump. And if you find another way to jump over the hurdle, all they measure and look at is, great, you jumped over that hurdle, on to the next one. I see that it's not like university where you sit down to take tests and you learn. It's actually about building a business. Uh, So that explains the first step and how you make the 10K investment. Sure. The second step is a very simple yet powerful uh, formula, which is we have set ourselves a limit that we can only do follow-on investments in the top third of the companies which get the initial $10,000. So that all of a sudden puts a lot of constraints on us as an investor because every time you say yes to one company, you are saying no to two other companies. So really, you have to be really sure. So what that translates into in practice is that we do five new deals a month. So on average, we should be doing one to two new follow-on investments every month. So you need to be in the top one or two of all the companies in our portfolio, who we have not yet done a follow-on investment in. So that's, now you can get there multiple ways. Um, But fundamentally, you have to be in that top one or two. How do you choose the top uh, one-third? Are there metrics or filters you use? So there's a mixture of things. Well, actually, it's interesting because uh, there's a quote I remember from a very experienced uh, VC in Silicon Valley I'm just trying to remember, so I I reference the right person. He might have been from Lightspeed Ventures or something. But he said, when you see success, it's obvious. And really, that's a lot of what we're seeing right now 
is when you've got a food company in your portfolio out of Southeast Asia, which does organic, gluten-free, nut-free, everything foods, and they are busy selling locally in Southeast Asia, and they say, we're going to sign a deal with Whole Foods. Whole Foods loves us. We're negotiating with Whole Foods. And you say, yes, yes, yes. And then they come back and they say, we just signed the deal with Whole Foods. We're going to be on 85% of the store shelves in the U.S. You say, can I invest? And really, so some of it is based on that immediate, massive customer traction. Sometimes it's just looking at the numbers. You see the sales going up and they're going up 15% a month and then 15% the next month and then 25% the month after that, and then a 30 and then back down to a 15. And you see four or five months of that and you go, <laughs> something's working. I wanted this. This is now the top company in there. Sometimes it's just a company that quietly performs. We have one company, a fintech company out of uh, London called Finverity, and there was no one trigger point that pushed it over the edge. They were focusing on tech, and just quietly every month, they delivered their tech and got it built. And they were selling B2B customers. They're enabling a trade financing, so they provide call it invoice factoring, but it's basically a cross-border trade finance, specifically often for suppliers in countries with very poor credit. Um, But you just watch them, and every month they got the job done. And they were developing their pipeline and moving conversations forward. And we signed based on having watched things develop. And in fact, their lead customer at the time we developed fell through. But we knew that that team would do it. And there was another VC at the time who didn't have the same background, hadn't seen them performing, decided not to participate in a round where we actually came into that round. And that company is now, they've got tens of millions of dollars of financing they're processing through their platform. And this was only, this this was within under a year and the valuation has gone up over doubled since we were in. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just a great success story. So sometimes it's just performance that gets the job done. How many startups do you have in your portfolio today? We have 116 today. And those 116 are actually in 30, over 30 countries around the world. They're on uh, every continent except Antarctica. So we're invested in Nigeria, in uh, Tunisia and Ecuador and the US and Germany and Norway and Australia, China, Singapore, India, uh, Cambodia. So yeah, we are truly a global investor. Well, that's amazing for a new firm. Uh, how old is Loyal now? Loyal is j- exactly two years old, uh, either last month or next month, depending on whether you count our registration or when the first dollars came in the door. That's amazing. A two-year-old firm with uh, active participation in 30 countries and 116 deals. So if I'm looking from an entrepreneur's perspective, and I really like working with you or Michael, your partner, uh, and I want to get more time, how do you manage to make time for 116 entrepreneurs or 116 founding teams? So what we do is we have 250 advisors around the world, well, 250, 300 advisors around the world that we've built 
opposite network. And our attitude, and really, Michael and I need a lot of humility to run this business the way we do. And it's the humility to say, on any one question that you are asked, who is the smartest person you know? And if you have a network of 300 people, the smartest person you know for any one question in this network should be yourself less than 1% of the time. So really what we do is we have a half hour call with every company. So a half hour call with 115 companies. Well, you can do the math on that. That's actually only, it's under 60 hours of time and there are two of us. So it's not a massive amount of time. But then when the company needs help on something, we say, sure, here's our quick thought on it. But here is the expert. Here is someone who's forgotten more about digital marketing, sales strategy, positioning, hiring programmers, uh, AI algorithms, whatever the topic is. Here is somebody who is smarter than us on that. And why don't you talk to the real expert? Wow, this is fascinating. Uh, you've really put a global network to work uh, to help your portfolio companies. And there's a lot of intrinsic satisfaction on the part of the advisors when they support entrepreneurs at early stages. There is intrinsic satisfaction. And one of the things we learned from the, the Founder Institute Accelerator, I mean, look, we copy from the best, is that if you're going to make money off of the work of other people, such as these advisors, then you had better share that money with them. So we take 20% of our carry as a venture fund, and we share that 20% across that whole network. So this is really saying that network of advisors bring value for the advisors, they can, it's almost like being a partner in a venture fund where they get the upside of being a partner and they get to only talk to companies if and when they have time and are interested in the business. So it's a win-win for them and for us. Wow. Um, I ask you so many questions and you seem to have very, very convincing answers for every one of them. Oh, this is fascinating. It's very hard to innovate in the venture capital world. There is no new way of building a venture capital firm that we have seen. We might have seen a few flavors of it, but for the predominant part, it's the same, same kind of structure that all VC firms have. So this is refreshing to see. One of the, the things which is really challenging about venture capital is in venture capital, it's a business where you tend to develop an ego very quickly and very easily. So you develop a lot of confidence in yourself and you're making snap decisions selecting among massive numbers of companies and our human brains are designed to help us process masses of information and make quick decisions that's why we are biased people we get shortcuts in our brain which help us do things but there's all sorts of human biases built into our brain. So for instance, one of the biases you have is the sunk cost bias. Oh, I invested a million dollars into this company. They need another 300,000 because they're in trouble. Well, I better put in $300,000 to protect my million dollar investment. 
No, that's a sunk cost. <laughs> the million dollars is gone. But the human brain is just like, oh, no, 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 I have to protect my investment. But there, there's a whole series of biases, which we are all sort of prone to. And it's as an investor, we've designed a process to get rid of those. So this, um, there's the endowment bias. You love your own companies. So I, I work with the company more than Michael does. I get to know it. It feels like my child. I want my child to be funded and not his. Well, that's endowment bias. You want, but you really need to set up strict rules and processes like this. Only the top third get funded because you need to overcome those human biases if you want to make the best possible decision as an investor. Well, you covered a lot of territory here. I'm sure we can spend more time and I would uh, love to learn more about how you're building uh, Loyal VC. But let's switch to another topic here. Um, Is there a nonprofit organization or a community leadership role that uh, you're passionate about? So one we're obviously very passionate about is we believe in giving back to support those who support us. And one of those groups is INSEAD. And one of the things which we really enjoy about INSEAD is INSEAD as a, as a business school uh, has been really promoting this concept of business as a force for good. And that's certainly one we believe in strongly. It's been interesting in our investing 80% of our portfolio companies contribute to one or more of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And we actually surveyed them, and I would have guessed it was about 30%. But you see the INSEAD, when it's a business school which says business is a force for good, and then Founder Institute, where honestly, I helped rewrite the curriculum, where they say at the first um, thing you work on, they say, what are what's the problems you want to serve to solve in the world? And by the way, if you're looking for big problems, here are the UN Sustainable Development Goals. These are the biggest problems we believe exist in the world today. So why don't you look at those? So it's not surprising that 80% of our companies actually do address these goals. So what's one charity you really believe in? Believe in NCAD, which is not for profit. As a fellow alumni of the institution, um, I'm a proud member of the community at INSEAD. Uh, thank you for all the contributions and thanks for making the entrepreneurship uh, process easy for everyone. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the SureShot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.